You're listening to the Table Church Podcast. The Table is a community in Orville, California that aims to follow Jesus by doing what he did. Love God, love our neighbors, and serve those in need. Find us at thetablechurch.net, Instagram, or Facebook. And now for the message. As we head into God's Word, would you pray with me? Father, thank you that we could gather in your name to read your word. Would you speak mightily and boldly to us? In any of the distractions that we get or we have come with, would you help us to lay those aside? But even if they pop up, would you help your Holy Spirit to help us grab onto something that you want to say to us today that could help us, that can move us closer to you, that can lead us to a holier life connected and flourishing in you. And in all these things, we give you praise and thanks saying these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in the middle, week two of a three-week sermon series on how to flourish, mastering three domains of life so that we can be flourishing human beings. As always, if you have any questions about anything I say or answers to questions I pose, feel free to text. That number will be on the bottom of most of the screens. That's there. And then at, at the end, if there's time, we'll take some time to answer those questions. Uh, But really, the idea behind this sermon series is that to flourish, we need to figure out these three domains of life. And the three domains we're going to talk about, and we have been talking about, are spiritual, relational, and vocational. You need to figure out your spiritual life, you need to figure out your relational life, and you need to figure out your purpose. What are you doing here? What's going on? And so this week, we're talking about relational, the relational domain of your life. you got to figure out people. For better or for worse, you have to figure it out. No matter the side you're on, you're like, listen, I'm an, I'm an introvert. People are hard for me sometimes. I like, I love them. You got to figure that out. Extroverts, you need people too much. You got to figure that out. Like there's ways in which we're both and all trying to figure this out. We got to get it in proper connection. So before we do anything, let's consult God's word. It's page 900 if you want to read it, or you can bust out a Bible that you brought. I'm going to get mine. Uh, There's some Bibles in the back. It has the page number on it for those of us who need it. 900, nice, easy, round number. We're doing Colossians 3. Let's read some. We got like three paragraphs today. We're just going to really just soak in God's word for a moment. And then I'll pull out some points that I thought were important. But this this is the stuff right here. Colossians 3, page 900. Starting with verse, what did I say? Five? Starting with verse 5, it says this. Paul, writing to the church in Colossae, he's writing to a church. He's always trying to address some problems, and we kind of get a picture of what the problems are that he's writing to address um, in in this church. Uh, There's just all kinds of bad teaching going on and people acting inappropriately. So he says, starting in verse 5, Put to death the parts of your life, that belong to the earth, such as sexual immorality, moral corruption, lust, evil desires, and greed, which for Paul here is idolatry, the worship of something else other than God. The wrath of God is coming upon disobedient people because of these things. You used to live this way when you were alive to these things, but now set aside these things, such as anger, rage, malice, slander, and obscene language. It's football day. No cussing. Right here. (laughs) Don't lie to each other. Take off the old human nature with its practices and put on the new nature, which is renewed in the knowledge by conforming to the image of the one who created it 
In this image there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian nor Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all things and in all people. Therefore, because of what he just said, as God's choice or as God's chosen people, holy and loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Be tolerant with each other. And if someone has to complain against anyone, forgive each other. As the Lord forgave you, so also we forgive each other. And over all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. The peace of Christ must control your hearts, a peace into which you were called into one body. And be thankful, people. The word of Christ must live in you richly. Teach and warn others with all wisdom by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing to God with gratitude in your heart. And whatever you do, whether in speech or in action, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus and give thanks to God the Father through him. The word of the Lord for today. We always start with the bad news in the church because we want to figure out uh, what we're struggling with so that we can better receive the good news that Jesus has for us, the gospel. And here is what I am taking away from this today, especially in, in, in connection to relationships is that relationships fall apart from lack of attention. They take work. They take effort. They take some kind of intentionality to them. In fact, relational work takes intentional effort is what I want us to to know. If we're going to master this domain, we have to know that without attention it falls apart and we need to put some intentional effort into it. And I see that in our passage when Paul says, the peace of Christ must control your hearts, a peace into which you were called into one body. Like this took intentional effort on God's part to call you into community. This is going to take intentional effort on your part to let the peace of Christ control your heart. You got to do some stuff. We want, and I don't mean this flippantly, like, but we want easy. Like we, we desire relationships that come easy. We desire relationships that click. Uh, we desire relationships, we use words like authentic, organic. Like we just want to click, have that, that chemistry, friends, uh, romantic partners, family. But that's just not the truth that we receive from Scripture. It's a lot more work than all of that on God's part, on our part. It takes some intentionality. In fact, in this passage, I counted 16 commands when it comes to relationships. 16 commands. Commands are always important to me, and I say this a million times. I'm sorry if you heard this. Commands mean two things to me. It doesn't come easy for you. Jesus doesn't command things that you already easily do, like breathing or eating pizza. He's not like, make sure you get enough pizza. Because you're like, I just do that. I'm going to do that one. But also it means that he thinks it's possible. Jesus thinks that we can do this. He's commanding you to do it. By the help of his Holy Spirit, by the empowerment of grace, you can do this. But it's going to take some intentionality, some purposefulness, some effort. Uh, one of my favorite counselors, relationship experts, is John Gottman. He's got a book, I think one of his latest books, called The Relationship Cure. Five step, five steps. I love five steps. Guide strengthening your marriage, family, and friendships. It's all about all the, the, the ships, all the relationships. Uh, this is John Gottman. And what I love about this is that he just studied up, up in the Pacific Northwest. He just studied couples. He put them in an apartment. He called it his love lab, which sounds creepy now. But he really meant like, 
How do people fall in love, stay in love? How do they have loving relationships? And he said his hypothesis was love would come from deep, meaningful conversations. That people would just be like, you know what really made me afraid today? I just was so afraid of losing you today. I just had to, he was like, none of that. That's not at all. I was wrong about every bit of that. It's not these deep, meaningful conversations that sustain relationships. He said, in fact, it's the opposite. He calls them bids. It's these uh, small interactions where someone's just kind of speaking into the air, just trying to remind each other that we're still there. Husbands, I'm talking to you right now. When your wife says something that doesn't seem important, it just kind of is. Like, man, it's raining. And you're like, I don't want to talk about the rain. That's a bid. And this is where relationships get sustained. Right here, he says. He comes up with these examples. He says, this is where meaningful relationship happens. This is how relationships remain connected. This is the effort that we got to put into it. Someone says, can you get me a cup of coffee, honey? And you could say, sure, as soon as I flip these pancakes over. I don't know why that's the first one, but it speaks my language. Coffee and pancakes? They got a great relationship. Did you call your sister? She seemed down last time. That would be an easy one for me to be like, ah, who cares? She'll get over it, right? But that's a bid. That's like a, hey, I'm thinking about you. I'm thinking about your family. I'm thinking about what's going on. The way we respond to that is how we create meaningful, long-lasting relationships according to this relationship expert. Here's a funny comic strip. That's number three. And you could be like, <laughs> I got stuff to do. But yeah, like, see, will you please be quiet? I'm trying to read. You're shutting down the bid right now. They're trying to just connect a little bit. This is where it happens for him. I thought this was really interesting. Wow, did you see that double play, ladies, when you're watching the baseball game? Listen to this one. A guy goes to the psychiatrist with a duck on his head, right? A joke. It's like, ugh, you just give him an eye roll. Um, there's just ways in which we could shut down our partner's bid when they get excited about stuff, Right? And it just, it just like, that's, that he says for him, like, that's where relationships happen. And I just bring all that up to show that, like, it takes work, takes effort, um, it takes intentionality, and it's the small stuff. You're thinking it's these deep meaning. You're like, I, I said I do. <laughs> like, what more do you want from me? I committed my whole life to you. We got to talk about the weather all the time? Yeah, you do. Gottman says this, there is no such thing as an instant relationship. It is actually two people who both want to be in a relationship with each other, continually sending and receiving bids, just checking in with each other. He goes on, turning toward a bid leads to the growth and development of healthy partnerships of all kinds of relationships, friends, family, uh, romantic partners. Turning toward a bid leads to fewer conflicts because the partners in a relationship are having the conversations they need to have. This was groundbreaking to me because I'm like, let's talk about important stuff. I'm busy. And that's just not where relationship happens. But ultimately what I want you to take from this is that it takes time. It takes effort. And we want easy, good chemistry, authentic, organic, just sprouting up by itself, and that's not how relationships flourish. And that's not how you're going to master your relational life. Uh, let's get into the points. What's the good news? You know how I preach? Head, heart, hands, something to know, feel, and do. That's the questions I ask. What does God want us to know from the passage we just read? Feel, experience, 
What is God speaking to us personally? And then what are we supposed to do? And my sincerest apologies, but I have to flip the order today. I'm so sorry. I almost brought you like some stuffed tomatoes so you can just throw them when I, when I do this. I know it breaks your heart. But I think it's important to start with heart today. I think this passage is really getting at heart. So the question is, what does God want us to feel? Experience. What is God saying to us personally? Because you got the information and you got the action, but none of that's going to be helpful if we don't just internalize it right here. And I think this is what I always say about relationships. Is that the best thing you can bring to any relationship is a healthy, whole, and holy self. It's really going to start with you where you're at, what Jesus is doing in your life. We see this when Paul says, put on a new nature. This is clothing language. Put on a new nature, which is renewed in Jesus Christ in the image of the one who created it. Get rid of all those distinctions. Get rid of all those other identity markers that you've got from the world that, that speak to who you are. You are Jesus's. This is about your identity and who Christ called you to be. You're putting on that nature. That is the most important identity, not the other ones you bring about class and race and all that other stuff, uh, country of origin. It's all about your identity in Christ. Three times he says put on. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and loved, that is identity language. That's God speaking to the core of who you are. You can do all the other stuff that Paul is saying because you are God's chosen people, holy and loved. That's the Holy Spirit in the deepest, darkest parts of you speaking to who God has created you to be. Out of everything else comes that. You can put on compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. And then ultimately you get to put on love, which is a perfect bond of unity. By the way, all the good ones are the opposites of the bad ones, right? Compassion and anger, opposites, goes on and on. Three times, Paul tells us to put on, put on, put on, because he wants our outsides to reflect our insides. He wants our actions, our personalities, to reflect that deep identity that Jesus has spoken over us about being holy and loved as God's chosen people. That is the most important. He wants our clothes to match our identities. Speaking of clothes, just a silly example. The Brits had their like music awards. They called them the Brits. And the clothes got weird. This is not so bad. I was like, okay. Is that velvet? What is that? Corduroy? Okay, Ed Sheeran. And then um, and then there's this, this guy. If you don't know who this is, your kids do, I promise you. This is like the normalest thing I've ever seen him wear, actually which is good for him. But my favorite one of the night, I almost, I almost bought it and wore it for my sermon today, was Sam Smith just crushing. Sometimes I'm like, I play that game like, would you, like, would you still be my friend if I wore this? No! It's about my identity, Ryan. 
these clothes matching. They're trying to say something about who they are and what they're doing and the art they create, and they're trying to stand out, and it's meaningful, and they get these red carpet events, and it's all weird, and it's hard, but the clothes are supposed to say something about who these people are and what they stand for and what their music's about. And Paul's doing the same thing three times, put on, put on, put on, because he wants our outside actions to match our inside personality. Right? Our clothes speak to our identity. Paul wants us to look like what we are. Paul wants us to look like the thing that Jesus is doing in our hearts and our minds. And I got to tell you, I preach about this so much because I want this. Like I so desperately, I'm just being vulnerable now, like I so desperately want this, that quiet, humble sense of self-confidence. Like there's so much about my childhood that I think kind of wrecked that. And I teach sociology, like how our selves are socialized. And then I'm sitting in counseling and I'm like, man, I could really use some of this. And I think just at the end of the day, like the work that I'm doing and the work that I'm asking you all to do is just constantly strip away that barbarian and Scythian, Jew, Greek, slave free, like whatever it is that they've put on you and that you've adopted and just get down to that core identity of who Jesus is calling you to be. And I think that's going to be a lot of our work as we're disciples of Jesus. I always bring up, like, it's really easy for us to even have identities as, as parents. But even that, like, the best case scenarios, they move out. Best case, right? Or there's just, you know, even as, as being partnered, like, I'm always going to be Aaron's husband. That's always going to be part of my identity. But I got a feeling I'm going to outlast her. I don't, I mean, listen, and I'm just a vibe. I don't know. I'm not being prophetic, the Holy Spirit. But, like, I just got that feeling that, you know, this is not a good chance. We both go at the same time. Like, there's going to be a time in our life where one of us is without the other. Like, if I ground all my identity in that, that can get taken away pretty quickly. And so I just, Paul is asking us to strip away some of these identities that the world has given us and really anchor our life in what Jesus has spoken over us, at least at the very core of us. And if we can become our best, healthiest, whole, and holy selves in Jesus Christ, man, that's just going to be the best thing for any relationship. Having that sense of quiet, confident, settled sense of self. That's what God wants us to feel. That the best thing we can bring is our healthiest, holiest self as being renewed in the image of the Creator, as Paul says. What does God want us to know? What is God, what's the information? This is what I'm taking from this passage this week. You're not going to go deep in relational life if others can't speak into your life. You have to let people speak into your life. You have to. You have to be vulnerable and connected with people enough that they can speak into your life for good or for bad. But you got you to let people speak into your life. This is, Paul says, put to death the bad parts of you. He's speaking into their life. He's giving them warnings. There's wrath coming for people who are disobedient. Anger, rage, malice, get rid of all of that. Take it off, right? We're putting on Christ. We're taking off the worldly stuff. He says, be tolerant with everyone. If anyone has a complaint, forgive each other. But this is where teach and warn each other with all wisdom. You want to have deep, meaningful relationships? You want to master your relational domain? you got to be in connection deep enough to let people speak into your life, to let them teach you and warn you and call out some of the stuff in you that you got blind spots to. 
and, and for you to be able to check stuff with, like, hey, I don't know if I'm doing the right thing here, and I, I just need to say this out loud to somebody. Like, that's where real relationship comes from. I had a professor that was a reconciliation expert, and she always talked about how most community is false community. She, her phrase was, praise God and pass the jello, right? Just not very sustaining, not a lot of nutrients. It's sweet. It tastes good. We're having fun. Jello's delicious for a little bit. But she says, if you want to get to real relationship, real community, you have to have people that can speak in your life, say hard things to you or about themselves. You have to have real conversations. Paul says it here, teach and warn one another with all, with all wisdom. What I want you to know and what I think Jesus wants you to know is that constructive criticism is your friend. We spend a lot of time avoiding it. We spend a lot of time just criticizing ourselves on our own tape going on in our own heads. We need people to help us out with this. There's a famous proverb, Proverb 27. A public correction is better than hidden love. Trustworthy are the bruises of a friend. Excessive are the kisses of an enemy. We will choose enemies because they give us kisses instead of friends who sometimes give us bruises to our egos, to our sense of self. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is helping us figure out, discern, process what God is doing and where God wants us to grow and where we've we got some rough edges still. Asbury Seminary is out in Kentucky. I went there for a semester or two online. It is, was the premier uh, seminary in the tradition that we belong to. I know lots and lots of folks who go there. Some of my favorite scholars are there, a guy named Ben Witherington, we've quoted a couple weeks ago. It's a lovely, lovely community. In 1970, they had this huge revival breakout. They were having chapel, and this huge revival broke out because the guy leading chapel confessed some sin. At least that's the story I've heard. He said the hard, dark stuff of his heart in front of everyone. And it broke out, and there was 144 hours of revival. The reason why that's important is because, if you haven't heard, there's a revival that has broke out now. That young people have not left chapel since Wednesday morning. About 1,000 people. Sometimes it dips. Sometimes it's 1,500. Sometimes it's five, six, seven hundred in the middle of the night. It has not stopped since Wednesday morning. Continuous worship, continuous exhortation from God's Word. People are getting saved. People are getting healed. People are just having a great time in the Spirit. It's lovely. It's happening right now. You can go read all kinds of articles about it. There's people that are skeptical. There's people that are so excited. There are people who are trying to crush it with their nostalgia. There's all kinds of people who want to co-opt this thing. People are driving from all over the place to get into it, but they have not left their worship service. They've canceled classes. They brought in food. It seems like a really beautiful time. I have friends there that are processing their experience, and I wanted to share them with you through a couple tweets. This is a friend who's trying to become a pastor. I know the text is small, but he says, yesterday at the university, I felt called to reconcile with someone who had hurt me a couple years previously that I never cleared the air with. It was so awkward and so difficult to apologize first, even though I'm the one who had a chip on my shoulder as the wronged person. He says, honestly, in this weird moment where we were fumbling for the right words, everything clicked into place. And we had our first full conversation since the first semester of seminary. I think that was beautiful. He wraps it up. I think that's what this little revival has been, whether it continues or not. It stirred our souls into being open to a shift in our relationship with God and others. Sometimes when we think about revival, we think about the Holy Spirit, we think about people running or dancing or speaking in different languages or hovering. I don't know if they're hovering, but I always think about that. I'm like, these holy people got to be hovering. I want to hover. Let's hover. 
Whatever it is we think about, whatever the Holy, whatever those manifestations of the Spirit are, we usually think of some extreme, because we're learning to love God, reconciled too. And he's like, this is exhausting. And he's, that's how you know he's doing it. It is exhausting. This is what Paul is talking to us about. That relational health that comes from letting God do the work in you, speaking over your identity, healing you, making you a whole healthy and holy human being. If you want to go deep, in relational life, you got to let others speak into your life to teach you, to warn you, and you them. It's just how this works. This is the way God made us. What are we supposed to do? The hardest one. The one that every time I bring up, people are like, man, I don't know. I don't want to do that. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is the key that sets you free to flourish relationally, spiritually, in all kinds of ways. Forgiveness is the relational smoother-outer, right? The thing that makes our relationships work. Paul says, in the passage we read, God's people chosen and loved, put on compassion, right? Do all this stuff. Be patient, be tolerant with each other. And if someone has to complain against anyone, forgive each other as the Lord forgave you, right? This, he gives you an example how to forgive, you, you love that forgiveness Jesus gave you? That's the kind of forgiveness you got to offer to other people. Three times, right? Forgive each other as the Lord forgave you, so you also must forgive each other. This is how it works. This is how we learn to tolerate people. This is how we learn to be patient with people. This is how we put on all those things, those virtues that he's asked us to put on. It's about learning to let go of the things that have caused us offense even things that are real. I, I love this quote from Martin Luther King, and I have a picture of him getting arrested because he's gone through some stuff. He's gone through some difficult situations, but Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, he says, forgiveness does not mean ignoring what has been done or putting a false label on an evil act. It means, rather, the evil act no longer remains as a barrier to the relationship. You, you don't got to ignore it. You don't got to sweep it away. You don't got to forget it. It's real. It happens. You can put real boundaries around this situation. But forgiveness is the thing. It's the key that makes relational flourishing real, that lets us experience it in a real way. This story doesn't have the word forgiveness in it, but I think it's important. I was reading this. It just came out January 3rd. Uh, this guy grew up in Saudi Arabia, a Muslim. He was very excited that he lived in the Holy Land for Islam. He's like, I live 40 minutes from Mecca. It like was right there. He's like, I was all in. Uh, Al-Fadi, uh, he said he memorized half the Quran. He was going to memorize the whole thing by 14 years old. And then in the 80s, Osama bin Laden was out in Afghanistan fighting, and he was convinced that God had called him to go and give up his life for this fight. And in doing so, He'd be entered into the afterlife, just ready, full of God's forgiveness and getting a ton of reward if he went and killed people in the name of Allah. And he said, by the grace of God, his mother stopped him from doing that, but he wanted to. But he said he grew up in such a way, he said, I had nothing but contempt for Christianity. And he ends that paragraph by saying, I grew up harboring intense hatred for Christians, Jews, and all who refused Islam. 
So his mom prevents him from going to fight this holy war, and he gets an education, and then ultimately he's like, I want to get a university education, and he's like, the best universities are in America, and I'm like, yeah. But he's like, I didn't want to go to America because it was full of Christians, and I hated Christians. But I knew if I wanted to get ahead in life, I had to get a good education. So I was really, I ended up going to America. I ended up going to get my education there. And I ended up in the dorms. And I realized, he said, I realized I didn't know really anything about American culture. So he's like, I wanted to learn a little bit more about American culture. Really, I wanted to sharpen my English. I wanted to get better English. So I signed up for this program that has meals in people's houses. And he's like, it was secretly a Jesus organization. I had no idea. They were trying to sneak Jesus into me. And he said, 1989, a family invited him over to Thanksgiving. And they said, can we pray? And he was like, ugh. And he's like, whatever, it's your house. And he said, during that night, he just saw that these people really had a lot of love in their life, and a lot more peace, and a lot less hatred than the people he had encountered. But he thought it was just, he just thought it was this family. Fast forward like 12 years, he gets his education, He's now working at an engineering firm, and somebody invites him over to Christmas dinner. I got to put a, I'm like, turkey, dude? Turkey's your conversion story? It's the worst meat we have. <laughs> but God used it. Somebody invited him over for Christmas dinner, and he saw that that family also had love and peace and less hatred in their life, and he went, this is too many people that claim to follow Jesus they have love and peace and less hatred in their life. And so he said, I finally asked the guy, why do you have this? And he's like, because Jesus saved my life. And then he said, and then God took him through hell, living hell. His life fell apart. And he said, those people seem to have a lot of good stuff. So he ended up in a church. And for six months, they went through the gospel of John. And he gave his life to Jesus. And now he teaches at a Christian university in Arizona. And he shares his testimony where he can. And he helps people... Uh, who want to leave Islam, get discipled, and he helps Christians figure out how to be better witnesses to his neighbor. But he ends the article by saying this, I came to know my beloved Jesus through simple acts of love, and I pray God will use my own simple acts of love to bring glory to himself by drawing others to a saving faith in him. He had all that contempt and hatred for this group of people that he really had no contact with, and God had to strip him of that, break him down, but it was really this just a couple dinners with Christian folks that opened his eyes to the hatred that he had and allowed him to experience God's forgiveness and let go of all the contempt and hatred he had for everybody else and come to a saving faith in Christ over Turkey. God bless him. The key here, I think, is to relational flourishing, to his own spiritual flourishing, for him getting to experience the love and peace that he'd so desired, was that forget just letting go of the contempt and hatred that he had for others. And I think that, in a big way, his, a smaller way for us, is going to be the key to our own relational flourishing, the way in which we are able to have strong, healthy relationships in our life. With that, are there any questions before I pray us out of here and get us into communion? Yes. Yes. Do you want me to bring my wings? Okay. Hearing no questions. Here's my summary. Thank you. To flourish, we have to get our relational life in order. You have to. You just, people are not, I mean, you have to get, figure that out. 
It begins by living into the deepest and truest identity that God speaks over you, right? Your holiest, healthiest, and whole self. It, it is about inviting others into our life in a deep enough way that they can speak truth and love into our life. God uses people to do that. And then lastly, we got to live by a rule of forgiveness that tries to emulate Jesus. We forgive like Jesus forgives. And with that, as we move into a time of communion, would you pray with me? Thank you, Father, for this word, for your letter to the Colossians, for encouraging us to take this seriously, to see that the work of your spirit is about helping us have healthier and more holy relationships. Would you let us take whatever it is that we need to work on, whatever you're calling to us. Maybe, maybe it is something about forgiveness. Maybe it is something about our own walk with you that we're not in a good space right now. Maybe you're convicting or challenging us with that. Or maybe we've kept people at an arm's length and we don't let them deep enough to know the real us, to see our faults and our frailties and our failures in a way that they can speak truth to us. Whatever you want to convict and challenge us, we pray that you do that right now. But ultimately, we do want to experience that identity that you've spoken over us, that we are your chosen, that we are holy, and that we are loved by your Holy Spirit's work within us. Help us to get that right because everything else will flow from that. And may this time of communion be a great starting point for that, or, or re-encouragement or reaffirmation of your death, atoning death on the cross for us, that you are the one who has called us and saved us and are making us holy. May this bread and this cup be a space where we are reminded, reaffirmed, re-encouraged of exactly that. Table Church, will you help me end this prayer by saying the Lord's Prayer? Saying, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread.